Coroner's reports can be lengthy and wordy documents. In this podcast, we break down coroner's cases to give you a summary of the investigation. We focus on the coronial recommendations and discuss what we can learn from each case. This podcast contains our own personal views not associated with any organisation. Coronial contains descriptions of death inquests that may be graphic and disturbing to some listeners. Discretion is advised. Hi everyone and welcome to Coronial. I'm Emma. I'm Georgie. And I'm Alice. I'm so grateful that you guys are so willing to do this podcast with me that I finally found other people that are keen on reading coroners. It's well, I mean, a- you have known me for like how long? True. It's been a passion years, of mine so for it wasn't a really hard, uh, It wasn't a hard <laughs> search. But yet I've only known for like five of those 10 years how much we both enjoy this hobby. That's true. But it's also five years. True. We should have got to this sooner. I knew that you were into true crime. We have had true crime-based conversations before. So many. <laughs> yes. But then you introduced me to coroner's cases and it was like, oh, there's a new dimension to uh, true, true crime. crime. Yeah, it's, it's like another crime. subsection. To morbidity? Still, yes, to morbidity. <laughs> mm. I love anything that's morbid, so. Absolutely. All of the time. Yeah, and I mean, I'm similar. I've been reading coroner's reports for a long time, I think since I was in uni. But it's always been a thing that I've kind of hidden a little bit because I thought that like my morbidity was a bit too far. We'll think that you're weird. Exactly. I thought I was too far off the scale, but it's only been like recently since, you know, these podcasts have come out about true crimes Mm. that has become more, I guess, socially acceptable and people start talking about it a bit more. Always been into the sort of crime genre. I I need more people. And the coroner's adds that extra element of also then reflecting on change, which is what I like about how to make those systems better. Yeah, the fact that you can learn from a coroner's case. Like, here's the bad thing that happened and here's how we can make it better. Yeah, here's the super morbid here's- old lady falling over on a fan. But how do we fix that? <laughs> oh my gosh. How do we stop that from ever happening again? Yes. Yeah, that, that honestly, I read that case about five years ago and it was haunting me. You just never wanted to own a pedestal fan ever again? No. Yeah, and every time I look at a pedestal fan, I have a look and see if it's got all the caps. <laughs> Even in other people's houses and or in public? I do, because I'm like, what if someone trips over to, that? You need to warn them. If a friend of yours has a fan that exactly. kill them. doesn't comply. doesn't have a cap, if you yeah. trip over that, you could get it's a gouge well. and bleed to death. It's an important safety tip. <laughs> So Alice, I understand you've got a little bit of info to give us about what's involved in a coronial inquest and, and why they're done. The Coroner's Court in Australia investigates deaths and reports inquest findings and non-inquest public interest matters. An inquest is a court hearing performed by the coroner to gather information about the cause and circumstances of a death. They're not a trial and there is no jury. An inquest must be held if the death occurred in custody The death occurred while the person was in care and there are issues about the care. The death occurred as a result of police operations, unless the coroner considers an inquest isn't needed. Uh, The Attorney General directs that an inquest be held. The State Coroner orders an inquest to be held. The District Court upholds an appeal against a coroner's decision not to hold an inquest. A coroner may also hold an inquest if it's in the public interest to do so. For example, if there is significant doubt about the circumstances of the death, 
or if they believe the inquest may prevent further deaths. A finding is the document produced by the coroner at the conclusion of an investigation. If possible, it will include who the deceased person is and how, when and where they died. If an inquest was held, the findings may also contain recommendations made by the coroner relating to public safety, the administration of justice or ways to prevent similar deaths. Coroner's findings are publicly available and can be sourced if you want to read the cases yourselves. Thanks, Alison. We'll certainly link the inquest in the show notes along with any other resources we use. So this week we're going to be talking about a joint inquest into two deaths that occurred in the Northern Territory as a result of crocodile attacks. So I thought I'd give everyone a little bit of background before we dive into the actual facts of the cases. The Northern Territory is Australia's third largest by land mass state or territory, but it is by far the least populated. There's only about 250,000 people living in the entire Northern Territory. Its capital city is called Darwin. It's up on the top shore of the Northern Territory and about the top third of the Northern Territory is what we often refer to as the top end. And that's this area of the Northern Territory where crocodiles live in the sea, but also in the river systems because crocodiles are able to sort of swim down those river systems. So they're found quite far inland. From about 1945 to 1971, crocodiles in the NT were hunted for their skins, almost to the point where they became extinct. In 1971, crocodiles were listed as a protected species, so we could no longer hunt them because at that time it was estimated that the population had dwindled down to just 3,000. But since 1971, their population has steadily increased and it's now thought that the anti-population of saltwater crocodiles is up around the 100,000 mark, which when you consider that the entire population of the NT is only 250,000, the crocodile population has definitely bounced back. And do you know what, back when they were culling them before 1971, how high numbers were in that kind of time yeah, frame? I think that the population has actually bounced back to pre-non-Indigenous settlement times. So before Europeans settled okay. in Australia, they think it's back around that sort of level. So not sure what the levels were pre-1945, but that gives you an idea that they're definitely on the rise. Because of the population of crocodiles increasing so steadily, the risk of crocodile attacks is obviously becoming more and more prevalent. So say 20 or 30 years ago, it wasn't that uncommon for people to go swimming in you know, billabongs and things like that in the Northern Territory, not really thinking about the risk of crocodile attacks. But now, because the crocodile population has increased so much, um, it's just not something that you can do anymore. So that gives a little bit of context to what's happened in terms of the crocodile population um, and also we'll give a little context to what happened in the first inquest which was in relation to William George Scott. So Mr Scott who I'll refer to as Bill as he's referred to in the coroner's report was 62 years old at the time of his death which occurred in 2014. He was from Canada in New South Wales and was married to Roslyn and they had two children together Aaron and Kylie who were both adults at the time of his passing. In the late 70s, Bill and his family decided to move to Darwin in the Northern Territory and just became enamoured with the lifestyle. Bill became a keen fisherman and he enjoyed fishing and camping, particularly along the South Alligator River system, which is a river system in Kakadu National Park, which just sits to the east of Darwin. 
at the time of Bill's death, he had 30 years experience fishing in empty waters and he was well aware of the different conditions and the potential presence of crocodiles in the area. So he was really understanding of the whole NT lifestyle and wildlife and nature and that kind That's of thing. That's right. He'd been there for 30 years and had been fishing and camping and all those things along this same spot that they'd been in. So he was super familiar. But again, as I said before, conditions have changed. Yeah. The particular incident occurred over the June long weekend in 2014 when Bill and his wife went off for a camping trip to Bill Dean Billabong which is located on that South Alligator River system inside Kakadu National Park. It is about 180 kilometres southeast of Darwin. Bill and his wife had planned to spend the long weekend at the Billabong with their son Aaron and his family and also another set of family friends. Bill and Aaron had camped at this particular Billabong many times. They were super familiar with the area. The Billabong itself was quite large. It was about 10 kilometres in length and went down about seven metres in depth. So quite a big body of water and it is a really, really popular spot for locals to go fishing and camping. So nothing out of the ordinary, something they'd done probably a hundred times before. So throughout the course of the morning of the 7th of June, the different parties began to arrive at the Billabong and then around 10am they launched their boats into the water. At the time that they launched the boat, they didn't see any crocodiles. However, on previous trips, they had seen crocodiles in the area, so they were being quite cautious around the water's edge. They had two boats that they launched at that time. One belonged to Aaron, one belonged to Bill. They were both aluminium tinny boats, so only about 3.5 metres in length, and the side height was only about 70 centimetres. However, once the boat was launched into the water, the side height was only about 50 centimetres above the top of the water. You're getting quite low and quite close to the water on these boats. Still half a metre, that's that's reasonable. It, yeah, I mean, I don't know, I wouldn't like to be that close to the water personally, um, especially when you're looking at crocodiles that are quite big, you know, three, four, five metres in length. Um, they're easily longer than the boat yeah. that you've just launched. Yeah, right, okay. So once they launched the boats, they motored upstream for about four hours and went and fished and you know had a good time they came back to their camping spot around 2 p.m and at that point they decided that they were going to fill up a big 60 liter drum full of water they planned to grab that drum once it's filled put it in the sun so it could heat up and they'd use it for bathing so in order to facilitate the process of filling up the drums they decided to use sort of a processing line so bill was standing in his boat and was leaning over and filling one bucket and now passing it along to the next person to the next person to the next person and eventually they'd put it into the big drum. In between one of the bucket fills that they were doing, Bill was just standing in his tinny. He was straddling one of the bench sort of seats in the tinny when all of a sudden it rocked and he became a little bit unstable. So to try and balance himself, he reached his left arm out towards the motor end of the tinny to try and steady himself. And at that point, a saltwater crocodile jumped out of the water from behind with the motor, so basically where he was leaning out to try and steady himself, and it closed his jaws around his left arm, left shoulder, and part of his torso, and flipped him out of the boat and just pulled him straight under. The people who were in that processing line as they were filling up that drum were the witnesses to the incident. So they were Bill's wife, Roslyn, his son, Aaron, and Aaron's wife, Joanne. 
How terrible. It would have been terrible for them to see that. Can you imagine? And all three remarked in the inquest just how quick it all happened. And this they heard the splash and then he was gone. There was absolutely nothing they could have done. And that rocking was just the croc would have come in contact, right? And then rocked him and knocked him That's in. That's right. Obviously knew what it was doing. Came to unsteady its prey and just locked its jaws around. And interestingly enough, Rosalind just said once it happened, once there was that initial splash of the crocodile jumping out and pulling him under, it was just quiet. Oh, that'd be so Violent, eerie. Like nothing yeah. had happened. So I just pulled him under the water and there was just nothing. Right. So it didn't even sound like there was at all or anything. Yeah. Reaction or anything. Did, it was done. must have immediately taken him deep. Like it, it wasn't doing anything on the surface. It just yeah, remember it's seven meters deep, so there's a lot of room to move. And I think crocodiles' natural behavior is to do what's called a death roll. So they pull their prey underneath the water and then they just start spinning sort of around on their axis, like upside down and around as fast as they can, which they obviously can do because they're quite powerful creatures. And that one disorientates their prey. So they have no idea what's up, what's down. It obviously drowns them. And it also is the mechanism they use to start pulling parts of the prey off to eat it. They've got the strongest bite force of any animal. Yeah, right. I think it's like well, a three ton or something. Like when you hear them, their snap makes like a pop noise. Yeah. It's so it's very terrifying. It's intense. Once you're in a death roll, apparently you just that's it. There's no way you can delightful creatures survive a death roll. So yeah, please, crocodile safety, everyone. If you're ever up in the northern parts of Northern Territory or you're in the northern parts of West Australia or Queensland where these animals are prevalent. Beside the fact that their tinny was quite small, though, it sounds like they had some awareness. They were trying to do the relatively right things, although I guess scooping water out of the river, I guess, could be questionable in terms of safety. Yeah, that's right. At this point, was it dusk or was it still early after? No. So they came back to the camp around 2 p.m. And so it would have been shortly after then. So it wouldn't have been. Yeah. Okay, so it's night. Yeah. It's not like they were doing it at dusk or dawn or. No. Uh, crocodiles particularly nocturnal? I'm not actually sure. I don't know if they have any sort of regular sleeping pattern. <laughs> I thought they were more active at dusk. Okay. I think they're one of those animals that kind of is pretty dormant most of the time anyway except when it's going for a feed right it doesn't it doesn't do a whole lot otherwise <laughs> except for fight with each other i just looked it up and they are most active at night dusk and dawn there you go okay so 2 p.m is somewhat rare then to have a croc attack i don't know i feel like if a crocodile sort of sees some sort of prey that it's woken up by a splash of people filling buckets it's like oh there's a yep. good opportunity I'm just going to know for I don't think it matters sort of what time. Yeah, probably more likely at those times, but not. I still wouldn't be going at lunchtime and waiting in a river in the, in the Northern Territory. Like, I don't think that's, that's a smart idea, even if they are nocturnal. At the point where Bill was taken from the boat and everything was quiet, his son Aaron then ran into the water to try and look for his dad. Again, not something we recommend, but when you're in that panic, you can understand. But he couldn't find anything. So he jumped into his boat and started to boat it downstream. And at some point when he was looking for his dad, he found his dad's hat float to the surface. But he didn't see anything else. So sad. So a short time after Aaron had left in his boat, Bill's body did actually float to the surface. 
back near the camping spot and Rosalind saw it and she went to go get the other boat to turn it around and start paddling out to try and retrieve the body. But by the time she had managed to turn the boat around, the body had gone again. Oh, how sad for her. Is that like other crocodiles came along and ate him or? It might have just released him after the death roll and gone back up and got him. And yeah, I'm pretty sure they do share their prey as well. So but kind of sounds like it's almost a good thing that she wasn't able to get to him because in the process of her removing him from the water, she might have been in danger herself yeah for sure and that i think is another thing that's mentioned in the report is it's hard because in both these circumstances the people that saw the incident did run into the water after it occurred which is natural instinct right to go and do something but also so dangerous it's so so dangerous in this circumstance because there's a big crocodile obviously around um you don't want to be going into the water that point police and rangers were called to the scene and they began a search that evening which they didn't find anything but they went back the next morning and they found a crocodile that matched the description of the one that took bill and so they shot that crocodile and the croc was pulled from the water they cut its stomach open and the majority of bill's body was found inside the crocodile the only things that were missing was his left arm which was the arm that the crocodile took hold of and his clothes were missing as well and how do they match the description of the crocodile that took him? But how do you get a description of a crocodile that takes someone in like a split second? Like they kind of all look the same. Yeah, that's a question I had as well. I wasn't sure how they did that. Maybe size and maybe just, you know, crocodiles are quite territorial creatures, so they're probably not going to move too far from their territory. But yeah, I'm not sure how they determined that that was the crocodile that had taken Bill, but they were correct, so. And maybe it was a known crocodile in that area, like maybe it had been reported before as being like, hey, there's this really big crocodile here. So that's basically the facts of what happened to Bill. There were some interesting remarks that were made by the coroner. As mentioned earlier, the population of saltwater crocodiles has increased quite dramatically since um, they became protected. So the coroner remarked how it wasn't uncommon for even him back in the day to go swimming in pools and waterways. So on Bill's circumstance, where prior to his death, he'd lived in the antique for 30 years. So he was very familiar with the landscape. He might have easily been able to do this before. It was never an issue, obviously, up until this point, being able to take water from the waterways. And there might have been sort of a sense of complacency there as well. Yeah, definitely. If you're a tourist, you're going to be like hyper aware of okay, there's crocodiles here, I need to make sure I don't do anything that will put myself in danger. Whereas if you've lived there for 30 years and never had an issue, well, you'd just be like, oh, I do this all the time. It's never... That's exactly never right. And the coroner did mention that I think it was 85% of all crocodile attacks and fatalities are against locals. That's a pretty high number. I would have thought, yeah, it was more tourists, but okay. No, because I think the tourists are more wary, as Alice said, um, about... Yeah you know, crocodile safety and things like that and are less likely to go anywhere near them, whereas locals are a little bit more complacent. I've done this, you know, for the last 30 years. Nothing's ever happened. Why is it going to happen now? But they're just not the same conditions. As mentioned before, the main discussion topic in the coroner's report in relation to Bill's death was the size of the tinnies. Tinnies are really common, or at least at that time and previously are really common in the NT because they're small and compact and they're easy to sort of weave around the different waterways in the NT. 
They're also called roof toppers because you can easily just chuck them on your roof and go anywhere with them. So they're just really easily transportable. So they're really, really popular in the NT or at least um, were back at this time. But to that, male crocodiles can grow up to seven metres in length and females about three and a half. So bigger than the size of these three and a half metre tinnies. And on top of that, their lifespan's quite long. It's 60 to 70 years. And crocodiles continuously grow throughout their life. So as the population increases and ages, there's going to be more and more larger crocodiles in the area. And that's why using these small tinny boats is becoming more and more dangerous. And you said the the culling stopped in 71. So that's 50 years ago. So those are probably that growth of those that were remaining in 71 are probably still potentially around. That's right. So you're getting more and more larger crocodiles in their own ways, as well as just more crocodiles in general. After Bill's passing, people started on their private boat, putting barriers up to protect from crocodile attacks. But yeah, a metre on top of your 50 centimetres that you're clearing to start with, it's not very much when you're looking at a seven metre crocodile. No, not at all. Because it kind of depends how much like you stand out of the top of the the tinny after the board is up but you have to, if you're sitting down you might be okay <laughs> but, but if you're standing and fishing they did bring in a couple of park rangers from the NT who were very experienced with crocodiles and waterways and things like that and they basically said apart from you know actually going into the water the biggest risk to humans in terms of crocodile attacks is having a small unstable boat and they basically said we would not go out into the water in a boat that small it's just too risky Yeah, they sort of talked about how the best way to prevent or at least minimise boat deaths would be to put up those barriers. So that is something positive that's come out, not necessarily from the inquest, but from sort of public perception and public reaction to build death is that people are starting to become or started to become more aware of boat size and how that puts them at more risk of being attacked by crocodiles and they're putting sort of proactive measures in place to prevent that happening to them, which is, you know, a good thing. Pros and cons, though, because should we be just discouraging people going in the rivers unless they're in a bigger vessel or not going in the river at all? Yeah, and I mean, that's highly discouraged by all the different parks and jurisdictions, but it's not going to stop people from going in the water. <laughs> yeah, especially if you've been, like, camping and fishing for your whole life. However long, like, that's what you do, that's what you what your hobbies are so you're probably not going to stop doing that yeah Yeah, true and don't get me wrong in this particular case because the death occurred in a national park it came under a slightly different authority parks australia and they they did have a crocodile management strategy in place that the point of bill's death it was over 10 years old so it was quite an old strategy but they had decided to hold off on introducing a new strategy until the inquest had been concluded, which makes sense. Okay. And they did use signs and key messaging at the time of Bill's death uh, throughout the park. So again, mentioning things like don't go into the water. It's dangerous. There are crocodiles. Talking about how crocodiles are often not seen. And also the park rangers would go around and warn different people in the area that crocodiles are starting to get more and more used to people being in their habitat. And they're no longer scared of humans going out and fishing and being on boats and things like that. So they are more likely to attack. What they didn't have at that time was any messaging about boat size. Yeah, okay. That's something that they've implemented now 
since Bill's passing and putting up messaging around the park about that. But you can also go and I had a quick look at their website and they have all the different messaging about what you should not do. And that includes things like make sure you're bringing your own water because you should not be going into the water to get water. Um, so make sure for your camping trip, you're bringing enough water for the entire trip. That's a lot of water that you need to take though because, you know, NT, it's so hot. I can understand why it would just be so much easier to grab it out of the river. Yeah, that's right. There's also some other interesting crocodile management strategies and warnings that they had up, not necessarily relating to either of these inquests, but I thought were interesting. They talk about how, you know, children and pets are the ones you need to be worrying about and making sure that they're standing at least five metres back from the water at all times. They also say you should bring your dog or pet on the boat with you. And things like you should make sure you're camping at least 50 metres away from a waterway and make sure that you're not throwing your food scraps and things into the water or making sure you're like scaling your fish and things at least 50 metres away from the water's edge so you're not attracting the smell of fish to the crocodiles as well. Yeah, right. I can't imagine trying to keep my dog away from the water. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, just don't take her with you. (laughs) But that is a really common thing in the NT is having dogs taken. Yeah. Happens all the time. That'd just be like a snack for these seven metre crocs. Exactly. It's a little afternoon tea. (laughs) Unfortunately. The formal recommendations for this case, well, first of all, the coroner noted how there was complete lack of regulation about boat size, type and strength. And also there was a lack of regulation about the age and abilities of people who can pilot boats as well, which is very interesting. So the recommendation came out about making sure that Parks Australia is putting out warnings and material to the public about the increased risk of boating in smaller vessels, including the importance of stability of the vessel and making sure there's some sort of barrier around it to prevent the crocodile from entering the vessel and also providing the public different ways of reducing risk and things like that. You were also saying about the ability of the the pilot, though. Was there any implication that Bill was an unfit person to have piloted the boat that he was in? Or or were they just adding that on? I think that was just an addition. And he was actually piloting the boat at the time. He was just standing in it. True. But I think that was just an addition into it as a coroner realised there's just no legislation about this. But anyway, that was the first part of this joint inquest into the death of William George Scott. The second part of this inquest was in relation to a gentleman called Lan Van Tran. Mr Tran was 57 years old at the time of his death, which occurred in August 2014. So a couple of months after Bill was passing. Mr. Tran had emigrated to Australia from Vietnam in May 2013 with his wife in the hopes that he would come to Australia and be able to run his own farm. But when he had moved to Australia, he'd been taught how to fish and had become a very keen fisherman. So at about 2.30pm on the 18th of August 2014, Mr. Tran and his wife arrived at their favourite fishing spot up on the eastern side of the Adelaide River, which is just to the south of Darwin. I don't know exactly where on the Adelaide River they were fishing, but they were aware that there were crocodiles in the area and made sure to stand about three metres from the edge of the water while they fished. 
at about 5.30 p.m. they hadn't really caught anything, so they decided to pack up and leave. But one of the lines had been snagged in the river. And so Mr. Tran thought that the snagged line might cause issues for the wildlife and for other people trying to fish there. So he decided that he'd go and try and dislodge it. The tide had since receded, so he took most of his clothes off and started to wade through the mud to get to the water's edge to try and release the line. He grabbed a stick and tried to sort of unlodge the line um, in the water. And at that point, a crocodile came from his left side and grabbed again his left arm, which was outstretched. At that point, his wife was on the edge of the bank and she heard him yell out in Vietnamese, oh my God, I am dead, before he was dragged underneath the water. Again, so terrifying for family witnesses. Yeah, horrible. It would, I just, I can't even imagine what it would be like to see that. It's just so quick and there's nothing you can do. But at that point, uh, she decided to grab a knife and run into the water and started pulling on that snagged line, thinking that maybe he was still attached to the line for whatever reason, but he wasn't. And so she got the knife and started stabbing around in the water. Nothing happened from that. So she went out and started yelling for help but there was no one around so she got into her car she drove to the other side of the river and she found someone at one of those uh, jumping crocodile cruises and they called triple zero for her the rangers were dispatched and the police were dispatched about 8 30 that night they were out looking on the water for crocodiles and they saw what's called an eye shine so at night time when crocodiles are in the water they've got this distinctive um, shine I guess on their eyes that you can see that's an indicator that there's a crocodile there and they saw this crocodile that matched the description of the crocodile that was seen to have taken Mr. Tran uh, it was about a four meter crocodile um, and it had at that point a human hand in its jaws so it was quite obvious that that crocodile was at least uh, associated with the crocodile that took Mr. Tran so they pulled it out at about 9pm they shot it and at that point, they found Mr. Tran's body floating nearby, which they also removed the body, which was only missing its left leg and right arm. So it was the right hand that was found inside the crocodile's mouth. It was just the sort of middle portion of that arm that was missing. And when they cut the crocodile open, they found the left leg in its belly. Oh, that's horrible. So did they do an autopsy? Like, do they know what caused his death? Was it the fact that, you know, blood loss from the crocodile taking his arm or was it drowning? Yes, I I haven't looked into any autopsy reports and there wasn't a mention of an autopsy report on Mr. Tran, only on the crocodile that was included in the report. So I'm not sure. The cause of death in the coroner's findings is death by crocodile attack. The crocodile that they pulled out and performed an autopsy on was about four and a half metres in length. So it's quite a big crocodile. And it had a whiter head than usual. And because of this, it was actually a well-known crocodile in the area. There are a lot of jumping crocodile cruises that happen along the Adelaide River. And the crocodile was actually called Michael Jackson by the different cruises because of it a different coloration. Um, it also had <laughs> no front legs and one of its back legs were missing. No front legs? No front legs. One of its back legs were missing. It's amazing that they can still like live and... It was apparently a very, very healthy, well-fed crocodile. 
Sorry. <laughs> well fit by the croc jumping tourists. Well, that's probably right. They get pretty well fed by that. I think there's a couple of cruises every day that come along and hold carcasses out so crocodiles jump out. Did the coroner discuss those jumping crocodile cruises and whether they've contributed to an increased number of deaths because they're making the crocodiles more used to humans? No, it didn't, but that's a really yeah, interesting point and something that I've definitely been thinking about as well. Because the crocs then associate boats with being fed and therefore they're like, well, if I come out to this boat, and jump and nudge it, I'm going to get some food. Do crocodiles survive well in the wild if they're missing three or four of their limbs? Would they not have otherwise lost their territory because they won't be as good at fighting or securing their territory? But with the fact that these jumping crews was just coming along and feeding this croc, that he then didn't have to do anything to sustain himself. Yeah, he could look after his own territory because he was wealthy. Yeah. Whereas if the cruisers weren't there, maybe he would have been less welfare. And he wouldn't have actually been able to survive as well and grown as well and all that kind of thing that left him able to then take Mr. Tran. Yeah, I think it's definitely sort of a conversation worth having because it didn't let nature take its course in this respect. Mm. As you've all mentioned, the crocodile may not have survived if it hadn't been getting fed by these cruisers. Sorry, there might have been a different outcome. Maybe not, but it's definitely sort of interrupting with the food cycle of these crocodiles and the natural course that, and in relation to Mr. Scott's death, there was mention of crocodiles becoming more aware of humans, becoming less frightened of them as well. So I think that's definitely an issue. But it's also just profitable. It's one of the top tourist attractions when you go up to the Northern Territory. It's going to see a crocodile. And yes, they have crocodile exhibits yeah. in Darwin that you can go to and go see the crocodiles, but also going out into the wild and seeing a wild crocodile. There are like at least three or four different jumping crocodile cruises along the Adelaide River. Like it's not just one company. So it's very profitable. I was thinking how upset would that um, company have been now that they've lost their major attraction of Michael Jackson. Yeah. But then I'm like, oh no, another crocodile will have just as quickly come and taken over his territory and they would have still had a jumping crocodile because it wouldn't take very long for them to catch on to, oh, cool, I just have to jump and then someone feeds me. And there are a lot more crocodiles than just Michael Jackson. There are a yep. lot of crocodiles that they go out and feed. Yeah, I'm guessing the cruise goes up like sort of up and down the river. Yep. That's right. Visiting multiple. That's right. And I can't quite remember what the territory, the sort of length of a river is, but it wasn't very long. Like they don't own a huge amount of the river. So you are on those cruises going through different crocodiles' territories. And there's, you know, the male crocodile, but they also have a couple of females in there with them. So, you know, it's not just the dude. At the time of Mr. Trad's death, there was no warning signs about the presence of crocodiles in that specific area where he was taken. But the coroner did query whether that would have made a difference in Mr. Tran's case. Because he was aware of crocodiles and he was aware of the dangers and, you know, made proactive steps standing back while they were fishing, the fact that there was a sign there may have not deterred him from going in and trying to unsnag this line. But that said, the NT Parks Wildlife Commission has put up a sign around that area warning of the dangers of crocodiles. In terms of that particular commission, the NT Parks Wildlife Commission, they had actually introduced a crocodile 
management campaign called Be Crockwise in 2009. And that was following the death of a, a young girl, Bryony Goodsell. So when you go to Darwin, it's hard to almost escape this Be Crockwise campaign. There are ads on TV. There are ads on the radio talking about making sure you're standing five metres back from the water's edge when you're fishing. It's in there now about making sure you're in suitable boats and things like that. It's everywhere, all around the NT, which I think is great. Like I was definitely aware of crocodile safety, even though I was never going anywhere near the water. And as I said previously, the locals are the ones that are mainly being victimised by crocodiles. So that's why the campaign was focused on locals. Also, in discussing Mr. Tran's death, the coroner did mention complacency again because Mr. Tran would have been well aware that crocodiles live in that area, that they are not often seen, that they're hiding under the water, and just because you can't see them doesn't mean that they're not there. But that said, the coroner did, he didn't recommend, but he suggested that the Parks and Wildlife Commission add to their messaging a very explicit message that crocodiles are often not seen, but they're still there. So just remind people that just because you can't see the crocodile, that there is still a high risk. Yeah, even though he'd only been in Australia for one year, it very much sounds like he'd been really well educated because he was living in that area and, and trying to do the right things from that. So can't even say that his knowledge wasn't adequate around that. It was a almost good Samaritan thing that he was doing, which yeah. consequence made him neglect his knowledge about the dangers around that area. And unfortunately, it just worked out very badly for him. Yeah. It's just very unfortunate. I just wanted to flag, there was an interesting study that was referenced in this report that made a model of the different factors that affected the survivability of crocodile attacks. So unsurprisingly, the main influential factors were a person's proximity to the water. Obviously, if you're in the water or you're paddling or wading on a boat that's close to the water surface, you're going to be more at risk to a crocodile attack. But apart from that, the main differential, I guess, was the difference between the weight of the crocodile and the weight of the victim was a big factor. So in this study, they did up a model using a hypothetical 75 kilogram person. And they found that the probability of survival was quite high, around 81% if that person was attacked by a three meter crocodile. But that probability decreases quite significantly for that person to about 17% if the crocodile is four meters. Wow. So just a meter increase in length. Wow. And survival drops by 60%. And that's for obviously a 75 kilo person. Your survival is probably a little bit higher. If you're a bit heavier, obviously lower. If you're a bit lighter. But then really interestingly in this model, they found that for a crocodile that's over 4.5 meters in length, the model showed that the survivability is very low, less than 5%, but that's regardless of victim size. So no matter how heavy you are, if the crocodile is over four and a half metres in length, you've pretty much got no chance of survival, less than 5%. And I couldn't find in the coroner's report any reference to the size of the crocodile that took Mr. Scott. So the crocodile that took Mr. Tran, Michael Jackson, was 4.5, 4.6 metres in length. So that just shows that no matter the size of Mr. Tran, because the crocodile that took him was so large, he really had no chance once the crocodile had decided, I'm going to make this attack, that unfortunately was it. 
what you can take away from that is you really have to take proactive measures to make sure you're not putting yourself in a situation where you can be attacked by a crocodile because once you are attacked, there's nothing you can do. Like, yeah. that's it. So it's very much about these proactive, preemptive steps. So I think that was quite an interesting report that was cited. Getting back to the regulation that came in in 71 about not being allowed to cull, mm-hmm. is NT taking any, maybe a bit controversial here, but steps to regulate the crocodile population now or trying to reduce the larger sized crocodiles or anything like that? I'm not sure if there are any particular management plans in place. I do know that there are crocodile traps and things like that that are along some of the rivers. I don't know if they're to catch specific crocodiles or just to do just that to reduce the numbers. I know that they do try and take some of the crocodile eggs into the crocodile farm to prevent those crocodiles obviously from being born wild and going into the habitat and increasing that population and they are putting them into crocodile farms but of course that's extremely controversial as well yeah crocodile farms crocodiles are used for their skins because crocodiles out in the wild will have damage to their skin which is not attractive for the purposes of fashion i didn't even realize how big the crocodile skin trade was yeah apparently it's massive should we be doing more to reduce that but if we're taking the wild eggs to go to the farms then is that actually a good strategy but again controversial because you're impacting the native wildlife and and is it the same argument that we have with you know when people are attacked by sharks like just don't go into their territory yeah like if you don't go into their territory you're not going to be attacked Like, do people really need to go fishing and really need to be on the waterways? And yes, I understand there are, you know, large profits being made in terms of these crocodile cruises. And and it's hard because the tourism in the NT is so reliant on those sorts of things. True. But I think the lesson is just stay out of the water. You don't need to be going in the water. And there are sections at the Darwin waterfront, for instance, where it is completely crop controlled. So there is part of the beach there that you can go into and it's got croc nets and, you know, people constantly looking out and making sure that there aren't crocodiles in there. It also depends on the seasonality in Darwin because um, during the wet season, obviously tides rise and that enables crocodiles to swim in and access different areas. In the dry season, when the water completely recedes, you get, you know, your lagoons and springs and things like that. And park rangers will just go in and remove any crocodiles that were left and no crocodiles can swim in because the water's so low and then it's safe. Yeah. So there are things you can do if you do want to go swimming, but you've just got to make sure you're aware of the dangers and you're following the advice from the park rangers and you're following the signs and being careful. Yeah, it certainly sounds like NT's doing a huge amount to try and keep people as safe as possible. That's right. And I thought I might end this discussion with a bit of a fact about what happened to Michael Jackson, the crocodile that took Mr. Tran, obviously as part of the coroner's inquest. They took the crocodile, de-skinned and took its skeleton. And now Michael Jackson's skull sits on the desk of the NT coroner. How big is the skull? Like how big is his desk that he can have a crocodile skull on it? I, I think it's pretty big. I mean, I haven't looked up the size, but you can definitely see pictures of it online if you're it's interested. It's a 4.5 metre croc, so one would assume his head is 50 to 100 centimetres, yeah. right? Yeah, you would think so. 
I would assume so. Yeah, they've got pretty big head. That's crazy. As the coroner, like, why would you want that as a decorative item on your desk? I mean, what else are you going to do with it, though? A pen holder over here, my crocodile head over there. A crocodile head as a pen holder. You never well, know. He's put pens in his eye sockets. Oh, yeah, it's, yeah. it's pretty big. It's, uh, yep. But it's, it's like on like a little side table. It's a decorative piece in his office. I just don't know how I feel about that. Like, why are we putting it on display? Quite morbid. Yeah. But also, should we be treating that croc with a bit more respect? Like, yes, it did take a person. Yeah. But again, we were in its territory. So, and it was being fed on a daily basis. So how does it determine that Mr. Tran was any different to the jumping croc tourist attraction? You know, did they need to kill him? I think they usually do. They usually do. I think feel like that's more for the rest of the general public because they want to say that oh, no, it's okay that crocodile that killed someone, it's okay, we've got them, we've killed it. It's now no longer a danger to anyone else. When really yeah. the real issue is crocodiles in general, not specific. Yeah, I was going to say the hundred exactly. thousand other crocodiles are still going to be at risk of taking someone. Well, thank you. I have been looking forward to this discussion for so long. This case, since you started talking to me about it, I've been so interested by it because it's just one of those things that not having been in the Northern Territory much, something I've never really thought about. And so it blows my mind that these are things that are a public safety thing up there because it's just so different to the rest of Australia. I spend so much more time hearing about shark attacks than you do about croc attacks, so... Yeah, that's right. It's definitely something that's very unique to that northern strip of Australia. And I think because it's a less densely populated area as well, you don't hear about it as much, but it does happen. Yeah. And it is shocking when it does happen and it's terrifying. Yeah. Just make sure you're safe around waterways that are infested with the crocodiles. Absolutely. I think it's the main lesson out of this one. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.